Well, we're here on Christmas morning, and I thought it would be interesting if we uh, went through the passage that Pastor Tad read earlier in the service about the shepherds. I wonder what it was like for them uh, that night when Jesus Christ was born. And so if we want to imagine in our minds that someone from the Bethlehem Times has went out to the fields and he's interviewing one of the shepherds about that night, imagine that his response would be something like this. It was a night like any other night. Sure, there were a lot of visitors in Bethlehem because of the census, but not out in the fields, just us shepherds. And the only census taking place out here was the nightly counting of the sheep to make sure none were missing. And that had already taken place that night. The sheep were all settled and we settled into the same old, same old. It was a night like any other night. Darkness had settled in. Sure, in town there were certainly conversations happening around lamp-lit rooms as family members who hadn't seen one another in years were catching up with one another. There was probably sadness upon hearing of the passing of beloved aunts and uncles. Joy to hear of the birth of cousins, nieces, and nephews. Guffaws and laughter upon reminiscing of old adventures as children in days gone by. But none of those conversations out here in the fields. It's just us shepherds. Same old guys, same old stories. If Bill told his deer hunting story one more time, I think I'll scream. It was a night like any other night. The census had swelled Bethlehem's numbers for now, but for the most part, Bethlehem is a tiny forgotten town. Israel's glory days are over, even more so for Bethlehem. It's been 400 years since the Lord's spoken through one of his prophets. Rome rules over us now. Not much going on here in this farming community. We might have a thousand people, give or take. Most people have moved away to find work. And they'll leave again once the census is over and we'll be a distant memory. That's fine, because we shepherds are used to it. The people who live in town couldn't care less about us shepherds, especially people from Bethlehem. Uh, They just don't give us a second thought. It used to be that people thought highly of us shepherds, uh, especially uh, people from Bethlehem would think a lot of us. uh, They would always say, you know, King David was a shepherd from Bethlehem. But that was then. Now people look down on us shepherds. They say, if you can't learn a trade, you better learn to count sheep. They blame us for any robberies that happen at night since we're up. They tell us we smell like animals or worse. Weirdos is what we are. Outsiders working outside the city. Oh, in Bethlehem, things were abuzz for the first time in years. But out here with the poor, despised shepherds, Nothing was different. It was a night like any other night until it wasn't. And this is where we come into our announcement of good news in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We read there, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with fear, as they should be. It literally says they were, they feared a great fear. In other words, they're 
filled with fear from head to toe. <coughs> we often focus on the appearance of the angels, but it says that the glory of the Lord appeared there. The, the appearing of the glory of the Lord is a terrifying thing. And then an angel says to the shepherds, verse 10, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. It's a fearful thing to encounter God, but in our story, the Lord's glory appears for the purpose of bringing good news. Let's look at the announcement that accompanies the appearance of God's glory. This good news, the angel says, is for all the people. Now, certainly the gospel is for Gentiles as well as Jews, but that revelation comes elsewhere. Here, when Luke uses the singular, the people, and other places in his gospel, he's referring to Israel. And so this good news is for the nation of Israel, and it's going to be proclaimed first to Jews and then later to Gentiles, but in this context, it is all Israel. But it comes from the lowly shepherds, or comes to the lowly shepherds first, and then upward. What is this good news? <coughs> well, there's been a birth. The birth of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Here we have three descriptors to describe this newborn babe. A Savior, first of all. Joseph is told by an angel to name the baby Jesus in Matthew 1.21, we learn that it says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He is a Savior, and he has come to save his people from their sins. This is the purpose of his coming. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I encourage you to do that. He can save you from your sins. Just make him Lord of your life. But back to our birth announcement here, he says he is a Savior. Christ, that's his title. Christ is the uh, <coughs> Greek word for the Hebrew, Messiah, the Anointed One. The promised King of God's people has come in the form of a child. But not only is this baby a Savior and the Christ, he is Lord. He is Lord God in the flesh. We see this later on in John's Gospel, in John 8.56, when Jesus is speaking to some people. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus was God in the flesh, God with us, Emmanuel. This baby who is born, God in the flesh, the Lord. But note his humanity. He's a baby. In Luke 2.12, we're told, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. He's a child. And this babe is going to be the new Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15.45, it says this, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, speaking of Christ, became a life-giving spirit. 
But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Jesus Christ, eternal, taking on flesh, being born, living a perfect life and dying for us, for our sins, and then being resurrected to live eternally. So that if we are born again into his family, we too have eternal life. (coughs) Now, as if an angel of the Lord and the glory of the Lord appearing wasn't enough, then a multitude of divine beings appear to glorify God in Luke 2.13. It says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Another debate that you can have around your lunch, as Pastor Tad was talking, is did the angels sing, you know, we just sang, we sang the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Te- technically, the Scriptures don't tell us that they sang. It just says that they praised God. Now, I would counter, and, and so this can be something you use at lunch if you want to, if you're going to get a multitude of people to say the same words, the best way to do it is to get them to sing, right? In other words, I don't think we had a responsive reading, you know, like, like the one angel said, okay, glory to God in the highest, and then all the multitudes, you know, I don't think that's how it happened. They probably were singing. But this birth brings glory to God, the most high God, glory to God in the highest. And this birth also brings peace to men. D.A. Carson said in his commentary, through the birth of the Messiah, God extends His favor to people who have done nothing to deserve it. And He graciously grants them peace. Peace expresses the nature of salvation as the restoration of good relations between God and sinful people and the consequent reception of His blessings. So, once in conflict, now at peace. 2 Corinthians 5.17 speaks of this very well. Instead of using the word peace, it talks about reconciliation. (coughs) We read in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in other words, you're born again, you're placed into Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, God has reconciled believers, and then we've given us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, we're to go out and tell others, hey, you can be reconciled to God too. You can have your sins forgiven and be at peace with God. Instead of waiting for judgment from God when you die and stand before him, you will be at peace with Him. And when you die, you will be brought into His presence to live forevermore. Not judgment in hell. 
So I implore you this morning, if you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, make today the day. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be saved on Christmas Day? Christ came to die in your place, to pay for your sins and mine. He did this so that we could be reconciled to God. And all this was done for the glory of God. Our God became flesh and died so that those who accept His sacrifice will be reconciled to Him. What a God! Have you accepted that gift? It's the best gift you could ever have on Christmas Day. Next, I would ask, are you experiencing the peace that God has promised? Peace with God through being reconciled with Christ. Oh, I urge you, make today the day if you've never done that. This was no longer a night like any other night. Now let's see what these poor despised shepherds did. Look at verse 15 of Luke chapter 2. When the angels went away from them into heaven... And then I'd like, I like kind of in my mind, I insert about a five minute pause where they're just all standing around, kind of, you know, jaws open, not sure what to do or say. The shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. What an odd thing. What an out of place thing. A Savior. The Anointed One. God in the flesh is here. This is good news and you're going to find Him in a manger. I remember one time, right after Kim and I was married, just up the road from us in West Virginia, there was a a place that had... Uh, some kind of, I don't know, little, it was a, it was a thing where people who had old engines gathered together and they made them work and run, okay? And these were things that my uncle and my dad, my uncles and my dad were interested in. And so they took me and we went there and we went around and we saw these little one cylinder engines and, and different things and things that they used to hook up, hook a belt to for washers and all these things, all these old equipment. And, and it was neat and all that type of thing. But as we went around, uh, this guy whose land this was hosted on had a big metal building, not unlike the metal building that we have over here for the school, not as tall, but just a one story metal building. And uh, it was hoarded full of junk. But he said he said this, I have the governor's clock. In this building back here. And if you want to see it, you pay a dollar and I'll walk you back through and we'll go take a look at the governor's clock. And I'm like, it's a buck, right? So I paid a dollar, went back in there. And here is this massive, I mean, just among piles of junk. We're walking through a hoarded place full of and it's dark and everything else. And then he goes back in there and he turns on this little light and boom, here is this magnificent wooden carved grandfather clock. It's huge. It's got, it's got a deer hunter on one side and a deer carved out on it on the other. And it's just immaculate. And it looked so out of place. And then he told the story of how it happened. They were remodeling the mansion and something, something, something happened. And he ended up with it. 
And then I heard a story years later, I actually heard a story where they actually found that and returned it to the governor's mansion. Somebody went, you know, and paid for it and had it restored and brought in. So it's now supposedly back in the place where it belongs. But it just seems so out of place amongst that junk pile of stuff. And that's what we see with our Savior. The God of the universe. The the one who spoke it into existence comes to earth not to great fanfare and worship, but to be born and placed into a feeding trough. God's kingdom is truly an upside-down kingdom. Sinfulness has brought injustice and oppression into this world. That the king of God's people is born to poor parents from a small village and is announced first to poor, lowly shepherds seems out of place, but it is God's way. The fact that God's kingdom is for all people, especially the poor and oppressed, is a theme that we find in Luke that is tied to the Jubilee. I'm going to read to you just a, a, a snippet from a Bible dictionary that I have about the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee is the Sabbath rest at the end, <clears throat> at the end of seven sabbatical annual cycles. And you say, no, I'm lost. Okay. That just means every 49 years, the 50th year is a year of Jubilee. Okay. And it comes from Leviticus 25, verse 8. And during this year, economic debts were to be forgiven. Land was to be restored to families who sold in order to repay debt. In other words, when land was sold in Israel, the land was considered the Lord's. And he had given it to certain families. And so those families, when they sold their land, they would sell it in accordance with how many years were left in the Jubilee. So if it was just five years left, then the person wouldn't have to pay that much to use it because in five years it was going to go back to the person who owned it before. It was almost like a a Genesis recreation happened every 50 years. People had their land restored to them. They had a second chance as a family to take that land and to make money with it. So land was restored. Economic debts were forgiven. Slaves that were sold to repay debt were liberated. And what does that mean? Well, that Israelites, if you became so poor, if you, you did such a bad job managing the land that you had and you became so poor, you could sell yourself into slavery to another Israelite and you could work for them. And then they were to take some money and keep it back for you. And then in this year of Jubilee, they would release you and give you some of this, these funds get you restarted. It's this wonderful second chance that happened every 50 years. Most people would only experience one jubilee in their lifetime. Now, while clearly specified in the biblical text, there's no biblical or extra-biblical evidence that the practice of a year of jubilee was ever celebrated. In other words, we don't have any scriptures that tell us that the Israelites ever obeyed this command. But in the Gospel of Luke... Jesus begins his teaching ministry by quoting a passage from Isaiah 61, which is in reference to the Jubilee. Isaiah picked up on this theme of the Jubilee that was found in in Leviticus, and he said there was coming a great Jubilee. Okay, 
Now, the word jubilee is not used in this passage, but it's referring to all the things that happen in the jubilee. We read of this in Luke 4. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Luke 4, verse 16. And in, <clears throat> in Luke's gospel, this is the first teaching that we ever have from Jesus. Luke 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth. So that's his hometown where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. In Luke 4, 17, it says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to who? To the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was coming to begin a jubilee. A time when good news is preached to the poor, to the poor liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind. And setting at liberty those who are oppressed by oppressive governments. You see, God is showing His favor on people. Especially those who are oppressed by sin and sinful systems of justice. This continues on in the New Testament church. In fact, Luke wrote another book of the Bible. What, what else did he write? The book of Acts, right? So, so it's kind of like the Gospel of Luke part two. And in part two, when, when uh, the, the believers, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and, and they, they start gathering as a church, do you remember what did they start to do? They sold their land and pooled their money together. This was a new, they believed this was a new jubilee that, that Jesus was enacting and that, that they were going to take their funds and they were going to work to help people who were oppressed. And I don't think they were wrong in doing that. And I think that's something that churches have lost through the years. But it continues on in the church and it extends to our day. And I want to read to you from a passage, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 25. Now, he's just talking about how the gospel is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And he says in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 1, he says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, God's kingdom is for anyone. 
regardless of their position in society. And in fact, God's kingdom, as we see it coming into the world, is announced, if you will, from the bottom up. Oh, this was not a night like any other night. Notice the responses to this event. Luke 2, verse 18. And all who heard it wondered. They were astonished. They were astonished at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen, heard and seen as it had been told them. Now that phrase, as it has been told them, is repeated there a few times in this passage. And it's telling us that's kind of an emphasis that we need to pay attention to. God's, God came to earth in the flesh. And who did he announce it to? Shepherds. So the response of the people, they're astonished. And the story of Jesus is astonishing. God coming in the flesh, living a perfect life, dying on a cross for the sins of His people, and then being resurrected. Astonishing. But ultimately, it comes down to this. Do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus is the Lord of all? Only you can answer that question. But if He is the Lord of all, and if it's true that He came and He died for sins, and He was resurrected, then that means His purpose was because we were sinful people. Which means that you're a sinful person. And that you need your sins paid for in order to be able to live in God's presence forevermore. Christ paid for your sins. Christ died. And He is the Lord of all. And He is good. What a God who loved us enough to die for us. Oh, place your faith in His sacrifice for you. And then follow Him with your life. Live with Him as the Lord of your life. The story of Jesus Christ is astonishing. Do you believe it? Then we're told that Mary treasured and pondered these things. She's the, probably the one who relayed these stories to the apostles. You see, Mary and Joseph know who Jesus is because of what the angels told them. But to this point, they've, they've, that's all they got to go on is what the angels have told them. So now they're getting this knowledge confirmed by shepherds. That's interesting. We don't have the Magi yet. They come later. You know, another one of those Christmas things. When did the Magi come? Probably when Jesus was about two. Don't get upset about the manger scene. It's okay. It's, it's trying to tell a big story in a little package. right? And that's okay. But as of yet, we don't have any magi. As of, as of this moment, when Joseph and Mary have this child, they've had angels appear, and then uh, Mary talked to um, John's mother, Martha, right? Elizabeth, thank you, somebody. Is that you? Thank you, Hannah. Talk to Elizabeth, right? So there's, they just don't have a lot of information to go on, but then suddenly these shepherds show up and they tell this fantastic, amazing story. That a Savior has been born, which they know, Jesus. That's why they named Him Jesus, right? He will save His people from their sins. But, I mean, shepherds? She kept these things and she pondered them. You see, Mary and Joseph were poor. When, when they made their offering for Jesus in the temple, there were a few options that you had when you had a kid. You could uh, give a sheep or a goat. But if you were poor, you could give two turtle doves. Now, doves are common birds. Right? Probably not as common as grackles, 
but pretty common. I mean, in other words, a poor person could get a hold of a couple turtle doves pretty easy. That's why God allowed for it. Well, that's what they offered for Jesus. They're poor. Beloved, God cares for the poor. He cares for the despised. He cares for the outcasts. He cares for the orphans. He, he cares for the people whose, whose families are a wreck and tragic. He cares for those who are fighting against oppressive systems and trying to escape it. In our day, if this were to happen again, I wonder, you know, would, would, would the Lord just appear to the migrants on the border waiting and say, hey, good news, good news, peace. His kingdom is announced from the bottom upward. Oh, kings and rulers are going to find out about God's kingdom. You know how they're going to find out about it? Through the mistreatment of the disciples. When mistreated disciples are brought before the kings and rulers, that's when they get to hear about Jesus being king. Mark chapter 13, verse 9, Jesus says this. He says, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. That's how the announcement works. It starts with lowly shepherds. And works its way up to the people who are in the oppressive kingdoms through the suffering of his people. Mary pondered God's mighty work and care for lowly people. How do you look upon other people? How often do you consider God's great jubilee being offered to outcasts and the downtrodden? What an upside down kingdom. Christians don't find power in politics Christians find power in service to the lowly. If you are blessed with much, perhaps God would have you to help those who are poor and oppressed. If you are poor and oppressed, then please understand God's kingdom is for you. All you need to do is repent of your sin and serve the Savior in His kingdom that reaches out to help those who are less fortunate. And if you're blessed, hey, same thing applies to you. You just need to repent. And follow Jesus, whose kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. That's Mary's pondering. Now the shepherds, what did they do? Well, they told others what God had done. And they glorified and praised God for what He had shown them. Has God saved you? Are you among the ones who have received His favor? Are you at peace with God? Then I would encourage you to tell others this astonishing story of an astonishing king and his upside down kingdom. Praise and glorify the one true God who came in the flesh and died for the sins of his people. See, the birth of the eternal king of God's people was announced with great spectacle and supernatural splendor to poor, lowly, despised shepherds, not kings, not presidents, not rulers, not high priests, not scribes, not influential businessmen, not rich people who have all this world can provide, but to poor, lowly shepherds working outside their podunk little town. The good news of God's kingdom is truly for all people. Praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your upside-down kingdom. We thank You that You humbled Yourself. You who are worthy of all praise and all glory 
and service and honor. You didn't come and demand worship, but you came to serve lowly humans, to set the captives free, to give sight to the blind, to release the debts of the poor, and to save us from our sins. Father, truly, Your kingdom is for all people. And we have been reconciled to You through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we will now take this ministry of reconciliation and tell others, like these shepherds, couldn't stop talking about this amazing happening. Father, it's amazing that You loved us enough to reconcile us and to bring us to peace with You. I pray, help us take this ministry of reconciliation to others and share it with them. And Father, to do good works as we've been learning about in Titus, to to help those who are poor and oppressed and to show them kindness and grace, not because they deserve it, but because you have an upside upside down kingdom that cares for people made in your image. Oh, Father, use us to make much of your name and to show others what your kingdom is really about. And make much of Jesus, our Lord, the Lord of all. And we ask these things in His name. Amen.